Section 41 of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Rees. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Madame Roland, Part 4. On the morning of the 31st of May, 1793, a driving, rolling mist darkened the streets of Paris. Crowds of demoniac men, howling women, and reckless, bloodthirsty boys blocked up the thoroughfares, adding their shouts and imprecations to the dismal tolling of bells, booming cannons, and the melancholy sound of the tocsin. The rush and the roar rolled ominously through the convulsed city. Ila suprema dies! It is our last day! exclaimed one of the illustrious Girondists, and he said it with truth. Madame Roland and her husband remained in their solitary room, listening in sickening suspense to the sounds borne even to their distant retreat, not daring to venture into the streets where their appearance would be the sure signal of death. Friends brought them tidings of events during that dreadful day. The clouds that had hung gloomily over the city since morning gathered in an early twilight. M. Roland sat gloomy, unnerved, and despairing, while his courageous wife, whom danger never intimidated, spoke cheerfully and hopefully even in these hours of terror. But her words were suddenly checked by the sound of brutal voices and stumbling, heavy footsteps ascending the dark stairway. In another moment, six armed men noisily burst into the apartment, and, advancing toward M. Roland, showed him a warrant for his arrest in the name of the convention. I do not recognize the authority of your warrant, and shall not voluntarily follow you," said he to the officer. The leader replied that he had no orders to exercise violence, and should return his answer to the council, leaving a guard to secure his person. Far from being overcome with womanly fears, at this near approach of their enemies, Madame Roland was strengthened with fresh heroism. She immediately sat down and rapidly penned a glowing letter to the convention, ordered a coach, left a friend with her husband, and drove speedily to the Tuileries, where the assembly was engaged in riotous debate. A dense and murmuring crowd filled the gardens and the courts, rendering access almost impossible. Undaunted, she forced her way through, approached the sentinels who guarded the doors, and asked admission. It was refused. An instant's thought suggested a deception. Assuming the tone of the Jacobins, she assured them that she had important notes for the president that would admit of no delay in times when traitors threatened the restoration of a monarchy. The sentinel immediately permitted her to pass. Another sentinel was stationed at the door of an inner passage. I wish to see one of the messengers of the house, said she. Wait till one comes out, was the surly reply. Fifteen minutes passed that seemed hours to the impatient, anxious wife. At length she descried a messenger to whom she gave the letter, and it was immediately delivered to the president. A long hour passed, yet Madame Roland still stood at the entrance, watching with painful interest every face that came from among the excited assembly, hoping for tidings of her husband's release in reply to her appeal. But no message came, and at length, unable longer to endure suspense, she sent for one of the principal Girondists, and besought him to gain her admission to the bar that she might speak in defense of her husband and her friends. The convention has lost all power. Your words can do no good, 
violence, noise, and confusion fill the house, replied Virginot. Madame Roland abandoned the hope, and leaving her letter to speak the words she would eloquently have uttered, promised herself to return in two hours, and hastily sought her home again, to assure herself of her husband's safety. Upon entering her apartments, Monsieur Roland and the guards were nowhere to be seen. Alarmed, she inquired and searched, till she found Monsieur Roland had escaped the vigilance of his keepers, and was concealed in the house of a friend. Finding him at last, and inspiring him with new courage as her own revived, she again parted from him and returned to the Tuileries, though the midnight bell had tolled. The streets were brilliantly illuminated, but silent and deserted. The palace and the assembly rooms were vacant. A quiet and gloomy mystery rested upon the place that a few hours before had been crowded with a mass of human beings swaying to and fro with the passions of demons grasping for new victims. Foreboding some new and horrible calamity, she turned from the palace, blazing with lights, and traversed the streets till the shouts and uproar of the maddened voices of a countless multitude reached her ear. A nearer approach revealed the twenty-two Girondists of the assembly, guarded and driven before the mob, with threatened violence towards the dungeons of the conciergerie. Enough. Madame Roland knew at a glance her own fate and the doom of all she loved. A moment's delay at the Louvre to consult with a friend some means for her husband's escape, and she sped back to her own home, penned a hasty letter to Monsieur Roland, then sat quietly to scan the day's events and see the extent of her own danger. Bold, heroic, and energetic, she had preserved her cheerfulness and hope to this moment, but the remembrance of her fugitive husband, and a glance at her sleeping child resting innocently and securely upon her mother's pillow, brought with a sharp pang the thought of leaving the idolized Eudora an orphan. Her courage was gone. She threw herself beside the sweet sleeper, threw back the bright ringlets that clustered round the child's rosy face, kissed it with clinging love, and wept such tears as she had never shed before. Exhausted with grief and fatigue, she fell into a deep slumber, with her child closely clasped in her arms. It was a mother's last dear embrace. Just as the dawn of a cheerless, cloudy morning stole through the curtain windows, the rush and tramp of many feet, the clattering of steel weapons and clubs, and the hoarse howlings of a debauched multitude, aroused Madame Roland in time to meet at the door the rough leaders who immediately announced her arrest. No tears, not a word of supplication escaped her lips. She calmly pressed a farewell kiss upon the lips of her child, committed her to a friend, spoke cheerfully to the weeping servants, and followed the officers with a heroic and defiant dignity that elicited their respect and protection. To secure her from the insults of the mob, one of the officers kindly proposed to close the windows of the carriage. No, she replied. Oppressed innocence should not assume the attitude of crime and shame. I do not fear the looks of honest men, and I brave those of my enemies. She calmly and pityingly gazed upon the passionate and distorted countenances of the crowd that pressed about the carriage with threatening words and gestures. They fell back, awed at her fearless bearing, and let her pass unmolested. The iron doors, bolts, and bars of the Abbaye prison closed upon Madame Roland. A bare, comfortless room, dimly lighted by a high, narrow, grated window through which the damp, chilly air crept, was given her in lieu of her own home. Nothing broke the cheerless aspect of this gloomy cell. A straw pallet lay in one corner close to the cold, moldy walls, but without uttering a word of complaint, 
the undaunted prisoner laid herself down upon the humble couch and fell into a deep dreamless slumber but a few days passed before the jailer and his kind-hearted wife were fascinated with the cheerful cordiality the winning gentle manners and heroic endurance of the new prisoner they willingly aided her in giving the cell an air of taste and comfort at first a little table appeared and another day the jailer's wife came in smiling and full of mystery with something concealed under her wide apron suddenly the table was decorated and brightened with a neat white spread and the good little woman hastened away pleased and proud with madame roland's rewarding expressions of surprise and pleasure then came books writing materials quickly followed and lastly fresh beautiful flowers bloomed in the grated window of her cell four months passed away and the beginning of the fifth found madame roland cheerful and contented strong and resolute as when she graced the elegant saloons of a palace home satisfied and happy that her husband had escaped at rest in regard to her child safely asylumed with a friend and hoping for the near approach of the nation's tranquillity and her consequent release she lost not a moment in repinings or useless tears occupied with her books or sketching the scenery of la platiere and other places distinct and dear in remembrance or writing her memoirs she scarcely lived at all in the damp dark cell her busy imagination was continually on the wing and when recalled to her loneliness and imprisonment by the entrance of the keeper with her coarse fare she felt no gloom shed no tears but kindly greeted him and partook of the untempting food spread upon a rusty stove to preserve the little table unsoiled with as much liveliness and grace as if she presided at the splendid dining-table of the minister of the interior she might have possessed herself of some luxuries, but choosing rather to relieve her fellow sufferers, she distributed her money among them to obtain necessary comforts. One day two commissioners entered her cell to extort from her, if possible, the secret of her husband's retreat, since all Paris and its environs had been diligently searched for the fugitive minister. She scorned to dissimulate, and told them plainly she knew the place of his concealment, but nothing on earth could induce her to betray him she spurned them from her from first to last madame roland's defiant heroism cost her liberty and life her contemptuous treatment of these jacobin inquisitors determined her fate she was too illustrious too eloquent too fearless a woman to be suffered to live but it was necessary to convict her on a new charge in order to bring her to the scaffold the following day an officer entered and announced to madame roland that her liberty was restored Scarcely believing her senses, she emerged from her prison, joyfully breathed the free air again, and accustomed her eyes to the blinding light of day, scarcely less bewildering than the exultation of being free, of clasping her child to her heart and claiming her own home. Ordering a carriage to drive quickly to the Rue de la Harpe, it was not long before she alighted at her own door, her face beaming with the expected happiness of hearing again the voice of Eudora. She eagerly bounded up the steps and opened the door. Her foot was upon the threshold when two men darted from places of concealment, seized and rudely thrust her back into the carriage, with the assurance that the assembly had issued a new warrant for her arrest. They bore her to the prison of St. Pelagie, and conducted her to a loathsome dungeon already crowded with the most abandoned women and desperate villains, whose repulsive aspect made her shudder and shrink from the vile contact. Her courage no longer supported her, the disappointment had been too cruel, she sat down amidst the miserable wretches of the dungeon and wept and sobbed with uncontrollable sorrow but here as in the other prison she gained the sympathy of her keepers 
who soon ventured to remove her to a narrow cell by herself. As before, her room gradually assumed an unexpected degree of comfort. Books, music, drawing, and writing were made available by the kindness of Madame Beauchot, the wife of the jailer. Flowers and vines twisted among and hid the ugly iron bars across the high window, and a small table and comfortable bed completed all her wants. Once more she gathered calmness and happiness from her employments. She could utter with triumph what Marie Antoinette exclaimed in despair. What a resource amid the calamities of life is a highly cultivated mind. On the same day when the Girondists were executed, October 31st, 1793, Madame Roland was led to the dungeons of the Conciergerie. This frightful prison lay beneath the Palace of Justice. A wide flight of stone steps led down to the subterraneous passages that wound and twisted and intersected each other like caged serpents, and terminated in cells, cold, dark, and silent as the grave. The atmosphere was humid and noxious. Moisture oozed from the walls, and the damp, slippery floors made the bewildered captive recoil from a footing that suggested a path among sliding lizards and creeping scorpions. Through these dark labyrinths the heroic Girondists and the hapless queen had passed forth to a repulsive bloody death. Ladies distinguished for beauty and talent, young girls fair and innocent, noble men and their aged fathers, bowed and trembling under the snowy crown of years, had gone forth daily to appease the mad multitude thirsting for human blood. Still agonizing groans resounded through the gloomy corridors, or sometimes echoed to a wailing death-song from the breaking heart of some despairing prisoner. Rarely the voice of prayer went up from these cells, except rested from some frantic victim. Those were days of infidelity. God had withdrawn his presence from the atheistical nation. From one of those cells came a sweet voice that uttered eloquent and inspiring words in clear, ringing tones, thrilling every listener and kindling a new heroism from the ashes of despair. Those lips did not beguile fellow captives to exhausting, enervating tears, but aroused all the patriotic fire, the exalted courage, and the stoicism of which they were capable. They caught the unshrinking lofty tone of the bold-spirited orator, and when she paced the narrow courts, gathered round her with a love and devotion they might have paid to an angel. Fascinating and graceful, even in prison robes, stately and commanding, yet womanly and gentle, the sturdiest bowed before her, and the weakest leaned upon the strength her impassioned soul could impart. But one day she smilingly glided past them, attired in flowing white drapery, and her dark hair falling in wavy abundance to her girdled waist. She hastened cheerfully along the winding passages, passed through the massive entrances, and soon stood in the hall of the Palace of Justice, before an excited and tumultuous throng. In vain her voice richly and eloquently rose above the confused murmurings boldly speaking her own defense. Not in crouching supplication, not in fear of death, not in appeals to the humanity and sympathy of the assembly, but in daring defiance of their imputing a single crime to her or to those illustrious men who had gone before her to the scaffold. She sealed her own doom while proudly asserting her innocence. She was condemned to die. Fully prepared for this sentence, she received it with unchanging countenance, and returned to her cell as cheerfully as she had emerged from it, intimating her fate to the prisoners as she passed them by silently drawing a finger across her white throat. That night an old harp that had long lain untouched in the solitary cell resounded with slow, mournful tones, accompanied by a full, melodious voice, sadly sweeping a wild requiem through the long galleries 
that had been silent to every sound but human groans or shouts of exultation or despair. The shuddering captives recognized the farewell. The following morning, the gloomy opening of a November day, a long line of carts, crowded with victims for the guillotine, issued from the yard of the conciergerie. In the last was the white-robed heroine of the dungeons, still calm and self-possessed, still bearing up the drooping spirits of those who stood beside her. An old man with whitened locks, weak and trembling, leaned upon her sustaining arm. Her own face was brilliant and blooming, freshened and tinged with the cool morning air. The near approach of a sudden and horrible death was no intimidation to her heroic spirit. Nearer and nearer the rough vehicle approached the scaffold, as those in advance were emptied. Higher and more ghastly grew the heaps of the slain. Faster and fuller rolled the crimson tide. At last came the cart with the old man and the beautiful, fearless woman. She was still brave and undaunted, he shrinking and pale with terror. Go first, said she, that you may not witness my death. But the brutal executioner commanded her to ascend first. You will not refuse a woman's last request, she replied mildly, and with one of her winning smiles. The murder-inured man was one like everyone else upon whom that fascinating smile fell. The old man with the whitened locks bowed his head first beneath the axe. Then came the noble woman with firm, unfaltering step. She knelt. An instant of awful stillness was succeeded by the terrible sound of the sliding axe, and the beautiful head, enveloped in its dark veil of flowing ringlets, fell from the block. The noble, heroic, exalted spirit of Madame Roland had gone to the eternity she had so often and so darkly questioned. Her soul was, in an instant, ushered to the presence of an unacknowledged God, before whose tribunal human philosophy and stoicism and lofty endurance must vanish into nothingness. End of section 41. Recording by Matthew Rees, Davenport, Iowa. End of the Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins.